Hey, welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods. This is episode 31, and our guest this week is Bill Murphy. Bill was a teammate of mine when I played for the Camden River Sharks in New Jersey. Uh, Bill was, that at that point, finishing his 13th season in pro baseball. Uh, we played together in 2014 and 2015, and I wanted to have Bill on the show because he's had a really interesting, long, storied career. So he's played in total 14 seasons, um, over six or right about 600 innings at the AAA level. Uh, he spent part of two seasons at the major league level, and then two seasons in uh, Japan playing for the Chiba Lot Marines. Maybe I got that right, uh, and also a, a part of a season playing over in Taiwan. So. Bill's been pretty much everywhere. He's mentioned in the book Moneyball. I was reading that this past summer. Uh, saw his name. He was one of the. Uh, he was a third round pick from the Oakland A's back in that year's draft. So you know he was kind of in the thick of it when baseball was just starting to change. So really great conversation today, um, all about you know the way the game's changing, the differences between American baseball, Japanese baseball, and just what it's like to to grow up as a kid in a very competitive baseball climate uh, of California. So, all right, without further ado, here's Bill Murphy. Hey, Murph, how you doing out there? Good, Mr. Blue. How are you? It's been a long time. Been a long time. So, I've heard you're in Arizona at the moment that uh, there's wildfires near your house in California, huh? Yeah. Um, last night, uh, fire broke out in Ventura County, which is about 45 minutes north east of my house now and it spread to about 45,000 acres I went, it went from 0 to 5,000 acres in 10 minutes and then this morning we had one break out about 6 miles north of my house so you know we had the powerful Santa Ana winds are coming through and when they come you pray that there's not going to be a brush fire but one popped up and now another one popped up so you know, there's really nothing they can do but protect homes right now. So let's let's just pray that everyone's safe and everybody gets out okay. Have you experienced a, a brush fire before or a forest fire? I mean, is that, it's pretty common in California. Uh, yeah, it's pretty common, but lately it, it's been more because we actually had a good amount of rain last year. So over the summer, obviously the shrubbery got water, which means there's more shrubbery. But then they die out in the summertime. So last month we had one in the San Fernando Mountain Range, which is my house is directly below it. I'm probably about three blocks from it. So we got evacuated, and it burned for about four days, and then they were able to contain it. But we were safe, and we didn't have to evacuate. We were one street away from evacuating, so we were pretty fortunate in that area. Yeah, that's pretty close. So did your did your cat drag you out of the house in the middle of the night and alert you to all of this? What happened while I was sleeping, and her name is Nala. Um, oh wait, I'm, oh, hold on, hold on, I'm, I'm, I'm mistaken. Cats aren't smart enough to do that. Well, that's where you're wrong. Bill, science My has recently proven that dogs are more intelligent than cats. Would you care to comment? Well, let's think about this. Science in itself is always evolving, correct? They're not always right. Science is way different back 100 years ago than it is now. Stuff is proven wrong, okay? Okay. With so, that. that being said, my cat, Nala, she's very intelligent, and she came up and started licking my face saying, Hey, buddy, lights and sirens everywhere. 
I think we have to turn on the news. What's uh, what's Nola's favorite news network? Does she? What does she think about fake news? Fake news. She's not a fan of. She's very entertaining with the fact that people say unfortunate things and then you find out it's not true and she finds it pretty entertaining. She'll go scratch her post a couple times and let me know it's funny. But besides that, she, she enjoys the golf network because she likes to follow the ball here around the yard. So for the, the listeners, we were uh, Bill and I used to banter a lot uh, during our playing days and he uh, would constantly bring up his cat and berate us on how much smarter his cat was than pretty much any dog, which I have no way to know if this is true, but I guess I can take your word for it. Um, so well, mercy. This is the problem. When, you, when you're around a lot of alpha males constantly, they constantly have alpha male stories, and a lot of those involve, well, I have a 100-pound dog. Well, good for you, but guess what the problem is? You have to treat and take care of that 100-pound dog all day long. You put food in front of a dog, he's going to eat it. You put food in front of a cat, you leave the house. She might not eat for three days because she doesn't know when you're coming home, so she saves her food. Dogs don't want to do that. You want to hang out with cats. They're fun. <laughs> all right, fair enough, fair enough. So let's jump into your playing days a little bit. So you went to Cal State Northridge. Um, you're drafted by the Giants. And then you didn't sign, but after your uh, your years at Northridge, you were drafted higher the third round, so you're the 98th overall pick. And as I was reading Moneyball like six months ago this summer, um, there was your name. So how did it? Did you have any kind of win to the uh, the Oakland A situation at that point? Obviously, you know that story was being written then, but it wasn't really public. It wasn't. You know, that whole Moneyball era didn't really bloom until a couple years later. Um, how privy were you to all the stuff that Billy Bean and the Oakland A's were doing when they drafted you? Well, so how it worked was, so when I was in high school at Arlington, I was fortunate enough to play in a very competitive area and a very competitive school. So the chances that I had were basically because I was surrounded by a few first rounders. Um, we had seven guys signed Division One uh, contracts or intent to go to that school. So I, I was fortunate enough to be around these guys where I had my opportunity to show myself, and that's when Northridge picked me up. And um, at Northridge, my junior year, all of a sudden, ton of scouts started coming around you know i was my velocity was way up from when i was in high school and oakland itself was one of those teams but the whole money ball thing was it wasn't even out there i think it was solely for billy bean of following the actual pro team and then it started coming out probably within three weeks to a month before the draft on how they were trying to work a new system or a new draft board based on finding ways to save money, not only in the big leagues, but also in the draft. But for me, like in the book, my name is mentioned because I was picked by Oakland. So I was the seventh pick by Oakland in the third round. So there was, or the ninth pick, there was eight other guys in front of me that were picked and I was a third round selection so 
I was a guy that was supposed to go in the top three rounds, so it wasn't kind of a uh, stereotypical Moneyball selection, but it was still considered the Moneyball draft. Gotcha. Um, so what did the so you said your velocity jumped up a lot? Everyone's always curious. So how hard did you throw in high school? And then when you hit that jump, what did that take you to? So in high school, my senior year, um, I didn't start learning. I never took a baseball lesson until I was a junior in high school. And our pitching coach at the time, he was he was like, you know what, I have to send you somewhere so you understand that, you know, I'm just not ragging or getting on you about this. So he sent me to a man named Frank Astori. Um, he was a pitcher in the big leagues of the Cincinnati Reds. He was a flamethrower. Um, and I went to him, and I, I only took seven or eight lessons with him, and then he's like, you're good. Get out of here. But the velocity at the time was only 85, 86, but I had a really good curveball, um, a good slider, and an average changeup. And then um, I had a really good senior year. I went 13-1 and one and signed with Northridge. And then from Northridge, my senior high school, it's 5'8", 160 pounds. And then into my freshman year, I got up to, I think, 185. So I gained 20 pounds. And there was just a lot more activity going on with weightlifting, um, long toss, and just playing more catch in general in in college, which got my velocity up. By the time I was a junior, I was probably sitting at 94 as a starter. So do you feel like just like the structure and just the everyday practice, just the more immersion in baseball was kind of what helped? To, and plus growing up, too, those were kind of like the big factors with you? Yeah, I think it was just maturity, um, having the ability to play. I mean, when you're in college, you know, you do so much more conditioning-wise, strength-wise, and, and, yeah, I think just maturity in general. I think I was just a late mature when it came to physicality of, you know, my legs, my core, and my arm in general. Yeah, and that's good for I like that's why I like asking everyone who comes on here pretty much, you know, like what did you look like as a high school player? Especially, you know, guys like you and we had, had D Ray on the show last week, um or sorry, the previous week and Sean Gleason. Like most of these guys, you know, you hear about these perfect game prospects now who are throwing ninety six in high school and it's crazy that they exist and there's more of them in California than anywhere probably, but um, you know, a lot of guys were like you and like, like I threw 80 as a high school senior, you were 85, 86, and then jumped to 94. Um, you know, Gleason was an 88 to 92 guy. He got up to 98, you know, his pro career. So I think a lot of guys, kids get discouraged where they like, Oh, I'm only 83, 84 when they see these kids throwing 96 now at 16, 17. Um, but it just doesn't, I mean, they have so much more room to grow and fill out. Um, and so your playing weight was, you were listed at 5'11", 195. Is that kind of where you jumped up to? So you grew a couple inches. And um, when did you kind of hit your, like, plateau weight? And was that your consistent playing weight throughout your career, through most of it? No. Um, I would say when when I got into pro ball, I think I was around 200 pounds. And then 
by 2005, I was like at 236 my highest weight, and I was in the, I think the last weigh-in was I played on the Olympic qualifier team, and I was like, oh man, this is this is bad. So I went down and um, BP Brian Price, the manager of the Cincinnati Reds, he called me up, and at the time he was our pitching coach with the Diamondbacks. He said, hey, why don't you come down to the, the, to the yard? I was living in Arizona at the time. He's like, why don't you come work out with us? And then I made, uh, met a gentleman by the name of um, Mike Setters. I don't know if anybody remembers him. but I remember him, yeah. He was a, uh, a guy from Hawaii. He was a reliever. And he uh, was nice enough to open up his home for me that off season. And I'd go work out with him four days a week. And I got down to about... 210, 215, and I stayed right around there all the way up until about 212. That was my, my playing weight. So what did you feel like? I know everyone's different, and you know, with young pitchers nowadays, there's this big like, oh, you got to lift heavy, bro. Like It's a really popular thing, which I think is good in most regards. But like for me personally, I would get a little too like big in the off season. And I always threw better when I start to lose a little weight and got a little bit thinner. Um, what did, how did you feel like you played at your best? Were you better, like a little heavier, a little lighter? Like, where did you feel like the ball came out the best and you were the best pitcher? I feel that I was different than most because I didn't like working out. Not that I yeah, didn't like it, but it was, it never benefited me. It, it seemed like I always got hurt. Um, I was better loose and, you know, I did all my arm care stuff. Like that's very important. Playing catch was always very important to me. And every time I lifted, like I remember in 2006, after my hard training I did on, in that off season, a week before, you know, the 40 man, um, rock, after deadline, I tore my hamstring like 75%. And I just wasn't used to lifting. And then I went back to lifting again, and then I started having hip problems. So the only lifting that I ever did where I felt really good in the offseason was kettlebell stuff. And the kettlebell is more of opening up your joints if you're doing it right. And that's what benefited me the most. But besides that, like, me fluctuating weight didn't really matter. I remember a time we were in uh, in Texas. We were playing uh, in AAA in Texas. I was with the uh, Las Vegas 51s. And we were in Austin. And I remember I was starting a day game there, and the other guys had night games, and they couldn't even get past the fourth inning because they were physically exhausted. And for me, I always thought the pitching part of it was all mental. And... I was able to bear down and throw six innings, no problem. They had to take me out of the game because they were scared of what happened to our previously three starters after four innings. Mm-hmm. I just feel that I think mentally, if you just walked in and learn how to control your breathing, learn how to pace the game, you want it to be paced. I feel, but obviously you have to be conditioned to a point, but I think sometimes it gets too much. Some guys love it non-stop working out running all that stuff it's great for some people and you know the teams try to control you in that too where they force you to do things 
things that might not be beneficial for everyone. So for me, it was a little bit different. It didn't matter what weight I was. As long as I was tough physically, I felt okay. Or mentally, I felt that was okay. Okay. So let's touch on that a little bit. Um, obviously, you know, especially for high school kids, I mean, even college guys, but I know obviously the, the, the A's preferred to draft college pitchers because they're just more mature and they kind of knew more what they get out of them. But one thing that college does, it, it teaches you, you know, how to work out and all the routine stuff. And it starts to segue you into pro ball where you're learning to play catch like a professional and just go about your business like it's your job. Um, so when a major, when a major league team, you know, the minor league teams, when they're forcing guys to do stuff, I mean, do you feel like it's beneficial to a point because these kids probably have no idea and they need that structure kind of like, you know, it's maybe a little bit militarized um, just so they can figure out stuff. But do, do teams start to take their foot off uh, your throat a little bit as you get older? Cause you played, you know, six seasons, you threw 600 innings um, in triple a, and I've heard that double a and triple a, they give you guys a lot more um, leeway. And obviously you played in the big leagues and in Japan too, but um, at what point do you feel like the minor leagues do too much where they're forcing guys into the like square peg in the wrong hole. Um, and then, and then how much leeway do they give you when you start to, you know, become more of like a veteran? It's just like everything else. Okay. So in the minor leagues, there's jobs, right? And, and there's jobs that aren't just for the players. You have a strength and conditioning coach. Okay. And, and his job is to babysit and make sure guys are doing what they're supposed to do. So just like anything else, if you're performing well, nobody asks the question. Yeah. If you're not, then they start asking questions. And everyone wants to cover themselves with their job. So they're very easy willing to throw you under the bus. So you have to find ways around doing your things where it's beneficial for you and not being controlled by the way they expect or want you to do things. So there are leeways, but leeways come when you have time in the big leagues. Okay? But the people that hold you accountable are your teammates. So you have a strength and conditioning coach, but he's not going to force you to do anything if you're a veteran guy. I mean, your contract's already signed. What are they going to do? Yeah. You do things to benefit you. And in the minor leagues, there's a structured program that they want you to follow because the head strength and conditioning coach wrote that program, so he expects you to do it. But when you go home in the offseason, everyone now hires trainers, and they do something completely different. And then when you try to go to them and say, hey, this is what I'm doing, they're like, no, we want you to do this, and it changes everything up. It's just like you're on a team, you're in – the entire year stay in AAA. You have a pitching coach. You guys work on something all year long, and then your minor league coordinator, your pitching coordinator, comes down and wants to work with you, and he starts tweaking you a different way. Now, he does that because that's a job, which is understandable, but why isn't it getting relayed that, well, we're working on this to get him better. We're going to try to go a different route all of a sudden when he's 12, 12 games started 12 games in so it's it's a balancing act that a player has to learn how to deal with and make everyone satisfied yeah and i imagine just to play devil with devil's advocate even from an organization's perspective 
you know, like for example, I, I have a, my, you know, my own travel team organization called the Warbird Senators and we have six teams. And if we don't have a, a common philosophy, like, you know, Hey, everyone's going to do this arm care program. Then it, if every kid was like smart and knew what he wanted to do, or just like had an idea, then we might get 87 kids all doing something different. And then of those 87, how many are you doing something that's like maybe too much or not the right things to do, but they believe in it. So it's like hard to know when to intervene as an organization, maybe where, you know, you try to give guys guidance, but then it's, I think it's tough to then pull that string where, you know, okay, we all need to do this, but here's some exceptions. Here's where you can make it your own without guys like running away with it. And then suddenly you don't have control over your players who you, you know, in everyone's best interest are trying to keep healthy and, and get them to the majors. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's really difficult. And I, I get what you're saying. You know, I, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's always a, a course, right? They want everybody to stay on course. You have to be controlled. It has to be a controlled environment, but there's only a few things, for instance, in pitching that everyone has in common. Everyone else is different. No matter which yeah. way they start their wind up. How, but the thing that's always key is that you all have to load almost the same way. You all have to get your arm up almost at the same time. And, and your release point kind of has to be out front around the same time. But everything else is different for pitchers during arm slot, the way they wind up, maybe how long they take to go to the plate. Everything's different. So if you try to structure everyone the same, there's no way for that player to improve on his own abilities because if a guy's throwing sidearm or a submarine pitcher, there's no way he can go in there and lift the same way as a guy that's, you know, 6'3", that throws 96 you know, those guys are naturally bigger guys and stronger guys, but if they're on the same program, they're using completely different muscles, different flexibility, so it's hard to keep everyone. There's always a little leeway for everyone, which is good, but I don't think the program in general is a whole outlook on, on everyone in an entirety. Yeah, I would I would agree with you. And I think that's up to the coaches, the organizations, to see a player that's a little different. Be like, okay, what works for you? Let's try to work out a because when you when you're an organization, you have you know two hundred players. It's kind of the players' job as well to go to the strength conditioning coach, the pitching coach, say, hey, this is what works for me. Do you think we can find a program that we can do that will work for me? And then that's that's where they should go. The structure is being on time, being where you need to be, getting in the weight room if you have to go in there, do your running when you're supposed to, and then find the program that works for you. Yeah, how do you feel like guys approach it when they they do want to sort of go on their own and they want to do something con you know counter to how the? Because I wonder in a lot of these cases, because I've been reading a lot about how to interact better with people because I now, you know, manage more employees than ever, more coaches than ever, more parents and kids than ever. So I'm trying to resolve, like I'm the guy who resolves a lot of conflicts for our organization. Um, so whenever they come up, you know, if a parent's unhappy with us or a kid is unhappy, um, it's usually me to sit down with them and, and try to come to a solution. So 
I wonder how often guys approach some of this stuff where it's like, no, I want to do it this way. Like you guys are, you know, hurting my career. Like no one would respond well to that. Um, do, do you see guys? Well, then they won't. Yeah. Do you see guys approach the front office in more like of a diplomatic way and sort of try to find a solution um, rather than sort of just like butting heads? So in the lower levels, you pretty much the whole thing is be seen, not heard, right? Mm-hmm. So in the lower levels, that's what guys kind of base it down to because there's always the tiers of ball players, right? If anybody plays fantasy football. Everyone knows that there are tier of quarterbacks. There's a tier one, tier two, tier three, and wide receiver and everything else. Well, the same thing in pro ball. You have your tiers of players. So when you're younger, your tier one players get more of the attention because they have a lot of money invested in them or they believe that one day they can help their ball club win, right? The rest of the guys, you might be feeling the void of being a, a decent player, a good teammate, and maybe potentially have a, an opportunity to move up in the ranks in the organization. Or you're that guy that blossoms at a young age, or a later age and you become a superstar. You know, the in-between players always get lost in the understanding and when they start going their own way, you, you're probably not going to be around very long. Mm-hmm. So you kind of want to follow the structure until you get a little bit older. And besides that, it probably takes you about 25, 26 years old to figure out what works for you. Yeah. You know, you try everything, and then one time you might not try it. And everyone knows in baseball and every sport, people have routines. They call them superstitions, routines, whatever, that work for them. And if something works, they try to do it again the next time and the next time. So it's really hard to gauge in pro ball when is a good time to approach someone and when is not a good time. But I think as a, when you're young, I think coaching needs to be structured because you're, you're trying to coach core values of a baseball player, right? You're giving them key instructions on points that you need to be get better at to become a better ball player. And parents, and I'm not even like really getting talking about parents, but I think they, they take it way too far on what they think is best for their kid because they really don't know what's best for their child. When it comes to being an athlete, you know, you're either an athlete and a good athlete or you're not. But every parent seems to think that they have the next Ken Griffey Jr. that that lives underneath their household. So it's really hard to approach a parent on what they think is best for their kid and what isn't. Yeah, and it's a tough conversation, to be be honest. I'm still trying to find the right way to explain to a kid and his parents, um, you know, exactly how good they are. Because at some point you need to be told... Just like I remember, and and this wasn't even a big conversation between you and I. It was really small, and it was in passing. Um, but because when you were, you were one of the veterans, um, we played together in Camden. Like I remember it. Like I, I still remember it really sharply. But you just were like, "Hey, Dan, you're too slow to the plate. Like you have to be faster than one four. Uh, otherwise, you just like can't play in the big leagues. Like they, if a scout comes and watches you, he'll just like cross you off." 
Um, so I don't know if you remember telling me that, but I remember you telling me that very distinctly yeah, I, because it was I like do remember cause... it was it was it was alarming to me because I'm like, oh, I really want to play in the big leagues, uh, and if this is one little thing that's going to prevent me, like I need to fix that fast. Um, but it's not easy to even, even then. Yeah, yeah, and even then, like that wasn't like a big knock on me or anything. It was just like, hey, here's something that you're not doing really well. Um, you should fix it. Like that wasn't like an identity crisis for me. Um, but it still was like, you just like never like hearing that you're not doing everything right. You know, especially a guy like myself where I try to control everything that I can. Um, and so like when you sit down with someone, you're like, Hey, like you're like, you're not where you want to be. Um, it's, it's, I think it's hard to hear those conversations, but at the same time you need it. Like I needed to hear that. And I tried to speed up, um, and hold runners better because you're right. I was going to be a reliever. And I was either going to fit their mold or I wasn't. And if I didn't fit their mold when they came to watch me, that was going to be it. Yeah, so I remember talking to you about that because I remember, I think the next day we were down in the bullpen and you were working on it. And I remember talking to you a couple times and when you came out of the game, I was like, dude, that was way better. Because one, as a reliever, you know, everybody wants to throw hard, right? And everybody thinks you, you're only going to throw hard if you're are pretty strong over the rubber, which means that they have to lift their leg. Well, no, that's not true. Your load is your load. I mean, obviously, some velocity might get hurt, some tilt might get hurt, but that's because you haven't been doing it or practicing it. When you practice something such as a fly step, you learn how to, how to get your load and still be below around a 1-3, which is good. If you're above a one three six as a reliever, and you're just not blowing people away, or your whip isn't below a one, you better hold your runners because they're going to steal on you all day long. And yeah. if you're getting a man, you walk a guy or give a base hit in the seventh, eighth inning, and a guy's on first base and he's still second and third on you, what was the point of bringing you in the game? And they look at that kind of stuff. And it is a hard talk to have. I mean, that was easy. I mean, that was just, Yeah, that was not hey, a big deal. got to be a little bit but with parents and stuff like I think I've discussed it with you like everybody always asks me do I give lessons I never give lessons because I don't want to have to give the reality to a parent or a child saying well you're spending this money for something that you know maybe you shouldn't do this year round I get it if you want him to have lessons but how about he goes and tries basketball or plays some soccer because you know by the time a kid's 14, 15, and 16, if he has an opportunity to even play collegiately. You know if a kid has the ability. I get it. There are the rare cases where they'll blossom and get better when they're 18, 19. But the chances of getting on a team when you're already at JC is not a very good good chance, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you're a starter in your high school team, that's great. But you got to start looking at the big picture. Do you really want to spend $100 an hour when your kid's 14? Or do you want me to tell you the truth? And, and parents don't want to hear it. So I have a hard time giving lessons just in the fact that <clears throat> I don't want to have that, that talk with parents. Yeah. So I try to avoid it. Yeah, I understand that. Um, and it's hard to it's hard to know exactly what parents are spending their money on sometimes. And I mean that in a, I mean that in the sense that 
a lot of parents bring, I think, because I think my area of the country is a lot different than California. Um, obviously, like you're, there's a lot of money and there's a lot of extremely good athletes. I think things are probably a little different out there. But, you know, for me in, in central Illinois, in the Midwest, we don't run into a lot of crazy parents who seem to be delusional. Um, we have a lot of really good, like down to earth people who just want to impart good values on their kids. I think they trust us to be like good role models for them and just like teach them good values, just like professionalism and stuff like that. In addition to, you know, baseball skills. And, and this isn't me just defending myself or anything. This is just, I'm just not sure in every case they're spending to, um, to make their son a major leaguer. It's a lot of times because this is something they enjoy. And if they get instruction, maybe that passion blossoms and then they work hard at it and they learn, you know, more lessons from baseball than maybe they would even in school, just like how to deal with adversity and all that well, stuff. I think, I think there's a lot of values and characteristics you can learn from having playing sports in general. Um, in California, it's very heavily saturated. So when there's a kid that wants to play baseball, his parents only let him play baseball, and they spend thousands upon thousands of dollars on lessons, travel ball, and all the, all these other things, and it becomes an investment for them. Yeah. So they feel that their investment needs to pay off. Not saying that, that their child doesn't become, you know, sign a $100 million contract and pay them back, but they don't want to see their money that just went away. You know, I've always advocated to a friend of mine that if you want me to come play with you or help you coach or whatever, how about we have this nice facility, we have offices, how about we hire a tutor so their kids can come here and also learn, <clears throat> make sure they're doing their homework. I know that's another value they could learn is that, hey, you want to play hard get all these lessons, well, you know, why don't you go sit, sit in there with a the tutor and also learn something about, about school because then I wouldn't feel that I'm teaching someone the same thing over and over again when they very easily can leave you to go to another instructor here in California because there's just so many. Mm-hmm. And there's so many kids and it's so competitive, it's, it's ridiculous. You'll have 20 kids on a team Nine of them are studs, and 11 of them are just there. They might not ever play, but they're spending the money. And to me, it's just it's crazy. Yeah, that's definitely a, a different climate than, than where I'm at. Um, so speaking of climbing the ranks, so you made it to the majors. Um, you came up with the Diamondbacks, right? Yeah, right. <clears throat> broke in the big leagues in 2007 with the Diamondbacks. And then you were traded. So you were traded a, a couple times. Um, you were traded from the A's to the Marlins, uh, from the Marlins to the Diamondbacks, from the Diamondbacks to the Blue Jays, which you made it back up to the big leagues of the Blue Jays. And then tell me about the transition from Major League Baseball to Japanese baseball. So this is how it went down, my career. So I was drafted by Oakland, played one full season with them, and then was traded to the Marlins. In like two days before Christmas in 2003. So, first initial was just shock, like, oh my goodness, you know. So, I went on the Marlins, played the season double A, went to the futures game with them. And then, after around the trade deadline, all of a sudden, the coaches told me, hey, you need to go 
back in the clubhouse. I'm like, what? And then I saw on the ticket I got traded to the Dodgers. And I was like, what? So <clears throat> I, 2 o'clock in the morning, I had the phone call. And then they said, just hold tight. And I'm like, okay. So two or three days went by. And then I was traded to Diamondbacks. And then two weeks later, I got I reported Diamondbacks. Then I was there for about four years. And then went to Toronto for a year. And then the following year, went to the big leagues with them and then got sent down. And then that offseason, I was talking to my agent. And he called me and goes, hey, do you, are you interested in going to Japan? I said, well, I mean, I was just in the big leagues with Toronto. He goes, well, would you do it? And I said, sure. He goes, okay, well, you're going to get on a flight next week and you're going to go try out. And I said, well, what? Yeah, I, we have a team that wants you to fly out there and have a tryout. And I said, well, does Toronto know about it? I'm like, no, nah, just go ahead and do it. And I'm like, no, no, no. You need to call Toronto because it's the time on the 40-man roster and ask them. So he said, okay, okay. Now, he called me back. A couple hours later, he said, okay, they give you the approval. Go do it. So I, I think it was like four days later, I got on a plane and flew to Japan. And there was probably 50 guys trying out. And, and probably three foreigners, so two Americans and one Latin player. And, and we're sitting there. I got off the plane, went to the hotel room, went to the stadium. They said, okay, be here tomorrow at 10 o'clock, and we'll start. So we go, we get there at 10 o'clock. And they're like, okay, we're having you guys throw a live BP in an hour. So you get ready whenever you need to be ready to go in an hour. So we start playing catch about a half hour prior. Get in the bullpen, throw about 15 to 20 pitches. And they're like, okay, uh, about another 30 minutes. So we sit down, get back up, start getting loose. Oh, no, 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 45 minutes, 45 minutes. Sit back down. Ten minutes before, we're supposed to go back out, start getting loose again. And they're like, oh, no, no, one more, half hour, half hour. So they kept playing this game, and that's what they do, because what people don't see is in Japan, the bullpens are underneath the stadium, so no one really sees you. So you have TV monitors. So they break down the games into, like, force. So... The first couple of things you'll have your long relievers, they're warming up the whole time. And then they sit down, they're not going to get in the game. Then your next tier guys start warming up. They're not getting in the game, they sit down. Then your closer and your setup guys are getting loose in like the 6th and 7th, 8th and ninth. And if they go in the game, they do, but they're, they're throwing like they're going to go in the game. So they were testing us in the tryouts if we were capable of getting up and getting down, getting up and getting down and not complain, not gripe or make excuses because they don't want that on their team. So went out there, it was like two hours of getting up and getting down until I finally threw. And I think the first hit I faced, I hit him right in the red thing. And then I think I struck out the next two guys and then went out there, and I think I walked the guy and then got the next two guys out. And, 
And then they're like, okay, good. And I'm like, but that's it? They're like, that's it. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow. They're like, yeah, do you think you can do it again tomorrow? I said, of course. Same thing the next day, exact same thing. And then next thing you know, I get back to the hotel on the second day, and the contractor's sitting in front of me to sign to come to Japan. So that's how it all started. So how did you feel about, like you said, you're just in the big leagues. How did you feel about signing that contract and signing away, you know, maybe being back in the bigs? Well, the thing is, is if I already had permission to go, I knew something was going to happen at that time. And I knew that if they were offering me a contract immediately, the team wasn't going to ask any money. So I just had to sit down with my wife and actually at the time she was my fiance. We were getting married in two weeks after this. So I I had to sit down with Adam. I said, hey, look, this is what's going on. I talked to my agent. He said, this is what's going on. He said, you know, if you sign this contract, the Blue Jays are willing to release you. And I said, well, that, that obviously was a sign to me that I might be taken off the fourth roster, so probably a better move financially and, and for my career to try to make some money. So we did it, and I didn't even second guess it. I just said, hey, it's an opportunity. It's really good money, and it's it's a big commitment because that year we went on to win the uh, Japanese World Series, so I was away from home for 10 months. But, you know, it turned out that it was worth it in the long run. So tell me about the, the pay structure in, in Japanese baseball, because I've heard it's it's different in the sense um, if you want to share your contracts where you can or if you don't want to, that's fine, too. But I've heard they take care of their minor league guys a lot better. Um, and that just in general, it's it's different. It's, it's very different. So they only have two teams, okay? They have their big league team and their minor league team. So, contract-wise, <clears throat> their base salary in the big leagues there is a lot less than ours. It might, might be, be more now, but at the time it was two hundred twenty thousand was their their low pay for their their guys. And in the minor leagues, their base is starting at sixty-five thousand, I think, which guys in the minor leagues can make up to you know, a quarter of a million dollars just being in the minor leagues because it's a career for them. Yeah. And they need players. So you might only have nine guys on the team in the minor leagues that are playing, but you have 40 guys on the bench. So their pay structure is really good for them because they have it as a career for them. For a foreigner, it's obviously a lot different. Um, getting there is not as easy as everybody thinks. Like, Probably the hardest thing was when I came back to the States is everyone's like, hey, Bill, how can I get to go play in Japan? Well, it just it's just not that easy. You know, if you're not a flamethrower that's been in the big leagues or is on the verge of getting in the big leagues, there's a lot of negotiation that goes on with the team. So we had a guy, Hayden Penn, on our team that came over in August to our team in Japan, and they were wanting – the team he was with at the time wanted a million dollars from our team just to get him to come play two months with us. So they ended up settling for 
less than a million dollars, and they finally got him to come over to Japan. But Japan had to pay money for him. Hmm. And the way I got through is through contacts. So, you know, it's a very tough place to get into. But when you're there, you know, if you do well, it it could be a very beneficial financially and career rise for for a player. Yeah, and I know you and I talked about it a little bit, and I was <laughs> so Bill and I when we were first teammates in Camden in 2014. Bill joined with like three weeks to go, and I remember we were in Sugarland, and I think you made your second start. And you that completed, I think, 10 innings for you. I think you went five innings in both. You didn't get up any runs, and you got a call from Taiwan. And you're like, so I barely knew you. We were roommates in this really nice hotel in Texas. And you're like, yeah, so Taiwan, they want to offer me 14000 a month to go play. I'm just not sure I want to do it. And I'm like, go to hell, Bill. <laughs> go, go, go screw yourself. Well, I want that fourteen grand more than <laughs> anything in the world and to go play in Taiwan. But... It was different for you. This is, this is what happened. In 2013 was my uh, yeah 2013 was my first year where I went and played independent ball, and that year, you know, so I was the guy that would <clears throat> I would start and throw seven innings, and if we needed someone to pitch in two days, I'd do it just because I didn't I didn't care. I wanted to pitch. Well, that year I ended up getting hurt, and I had, sorry, a little dry mouth here, I don't like it, but I was in Long Island, and I got hurt for the first time in my career, arm-wise. Now, when I found out that I had severe arthritis and bone spurs and bone chips, so I had to get orthoscopic surgery. So that entire year, 2014, I hadn't pitched an inning. I got a call late from Camden, and they wanted to fly me out there just to try out, and they wanted me to pay for it. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. First of all, you're paying for my flight. And that's the only way I'm getting on a flight. And they're like, okay, well, look, pretty much if you come, you're going to make the team. I said, I, I, I haven't pitched in a year. Look, you're paying for it no matter what. I could be, I don't think I even got on a mound with a radar gun. So I get there, and they're like, okay, I saw a couple curveballs, they're like, okay, you're on the team. And I was like, all right. So I didn't pitch at all for the first, I think we were at home for two weeks. Yeah, something like that. And I still hadn't pitched, and then we flew to Sugarland. I threw the first game in Sugarland, and we were in the room, and you kept complaining about how much I peed and for how long. And I'm like, hey, man, I drink a lot of water. <laughs> and then I said, <laughs> after that discussion, I got a phone call from Taiwan. And I thought it was a joke. I thought I've done five innings all year. And Taiwan called me, offered me money. And I was like, there's just no way this is real. And I let it go for, I think, a day. And then finally, I thought, I'm like, you know, this? I go, there's no way this is real. And you know, they're offering me X amount of dollars, whatever it was. And you're like, dude, you're done not to go. And I said, well, I feel bad. It's got to be fishing. There's only two starts left. And you'd be dumb. So I was like, all right, I'll do it. So I called and made like outlandish demand to go to Taiwan. And they said yes to everything. And I'm like, well, looks like I'm going. So I went, you know, and told our head coach at the time. I said, "Look, I'll make my last start, and then I'm 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 leaving." 
I'm going to Taiwan. He was like, well, good luck. And I said, all right, thanks. And I left. So it was a weird situation for basically they saw my name in a box score and just knew me that I played in Japan and did well in Japan. So they needed a, a pitcher at the time and they called me and, and that's how it happened. It was just strange. Yeah. No, that made sense once you explained that to me. Cause I really didn't know your backstory at that point when you're like, yeah, I was, you know, I won a <laughs> world series or whatever they call it in Japan. And you know, you had two solid seasons there. Then it made a lot more sense. They just flagged you pretty much. Um, and there you were. Cause yeah, I, I mean, the only really, the guy's question was, are you Bill Murphy? I said, yes, this is Bill Murphy. Cause first of all, I don't answer the phone. If I don't, if your name is not in my phone and it's, I don't know, recognize the number. I don't answer it ever. And this guy called the hotel room. That's how you murdered. He's like, this is Bill Murphy. Bill Murphy from that played in Japan. Shiba Latte Marines. I'm like, yes, dude. And I was like, you don't have time for this. I think I remember I hung up on him and he called back. And it just, it was just so bizarre and strange how they pursue you. And that's kind of how it is in all of Asia, all of baseball. You'll see a, a scouts from Japan, they're in the stands and you'll see them hiding behind a car in the parking lot because they, they're not allowed to talk to you. So everything's real secretive. Yeah, that makes sense. So tell me a little bit about uh, the culture shock, um, just the differences between Japanese baseball and American baseball. Well, you know, fundamentally-wise, like baseball, baseball in general, it doesn't really change. But you learn really quick that there's going to be some long, long days because, you know, spring training starts a month before MLB spring training. And you're there, and you go to a remote island, just your team and the locals. You stay in this resort. And you're only there for three weeks. It's just for conditioning. And, I mean, right out of the get-go, these guys are throwing 200 pitches in their bullpens. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm throwing 35 pitches, like building up like how normally you would do in regular spring training. And you learn that everything's based on time, not necessarily what you do, but on how long it takes you to do it. So their bullpen sessions would be 10 minutes. Well, they want you to throw for those 10 minutes. And they're just like, oh, are you kidding me? So I remember we had to go live BP for the first time. They wanted to go live BP for 10 minutes. And I don't know if anybody's ever thrown for 10 minutes in a row, but that's a lot of pitches. So I remember I was about seven minutes in, and I, I was just like, ah, oh, my hamstring, my hamstring. I was at 125 pitches three weeks into spring. And I was like, I'm done. And then our ace, his name is Naruse, he threw 285 pitches and then went back to the bullpen and threw another 80 more. So that's where you learn really fast that if you notice a lot of the Japanese pitchers, they're all very, very polished, very good. They throw strikes down in the zone they control at least three pitches but when they hit 30 32 34 they peter out and they get tired because they throw so much when they're younger and and play it in japan that eventually it catches up to them early so this guy that's coming over i think 
you know, he's coming over way before normal pitchers with Otani. Yeah. So I think he's making the right move of coming here now if he wants the benefit of being a pitcher that can go from Japan. There's been very few that pitched for, you know, 10 years and had a 10-year career in MLB because they throw so much when they're in Japan. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you know, when I throw a 285-pitch bullpen, I do need to get that extra 80 in there. Otherwise, like, what did I even do that day? Look, look, I remember Rick Langford. We were, I was in Syracuse. And I, I was pitching, going out there. When, I mean, I think a month left this season, like, hey, dude, we got to put you in the bullpen. You've thrown too many, too many innings. And halfway through the season, he goes, hey, Bill, I remember when I threw, threw every five days. He goes, they might have even thrown every four days when Langford was pitching. He's like, dude, just shut down your bullpen. He goes, I'm not going to tell anybody. You know, he's like, I get it. He goes, for you, you're throwing your bullpen just because, you know, they kind of make you do it. He goes, if you don't want to throw your bullpen, don't do it. He goes, save them for the game. I said, oh, that sounds good to me. So I would throw 10 pitches, you know. Even later in my career, I didn't. I couldn't throw bullpens. It just was pointless for me. I'm not going to learn anything. You know, if I go to the bullpen, I'd work on balance or where I was going to load. I, I wasn't necessarily, you know, trying to let it go or try to get spin rate and all the stuff that they got going on now. It was more just to make sure I had my balance point and I was in the right position I needed to be when it was time to go to the game. Yeah, and that's one of the things I think people take for granted is that you do. You just sort of like look for some feel, whether it's it doesn't even have to be like your like the ball coming off your fingertips. It can just be like a feel of your like you said, like your backside or whatever it is in the pen, just to kinda of like feel like, okay, there's Bill Murphy for the day or there's Dan Blewett for the day. I know it'll be there when I when I start next. Um but it takes a long time to get there, I feel like to that point. Like I didn't feel like I knew what my set point was probably till I was like 24, 25, something like that. And then I was trying to find it, you know, in every throw that I made. Um, it just takes a while. And that's kind of what you touched on you before. Know, some pit, some... Go ahead. I said, and that's, that's kind of what you touched on before where you're saying, you know, like they, they'll structure things in the minor leagues until you get a, a feel for it, you know, until you're a little bit older and you have an idea of what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, there are guys that, they can do it. They can throw bullpen and they need it or they don't feel right for the game. And there's other guys that they do it because they kind of have to. I feel, I was a guy that I felt like I was in pain all the time. But the second you, it was a very long in the game, I never felt a thing. I remember we were in um, Camden and I had started, let's just say for instance, on Friday. Sunday, we had a long day, and we needed a closer. I went out and closed the game because, hey, I didn't even play catch that day. I, was so, I, I didn't feel well. But once I knew that it was time for me to go in the game, nothing. I felt nothing. I knew I was ready. And, you know, that's something, something that people don't learn is that when your adrenaline gets going, you're mentally, your, your body takes over and your body knows what it needs to do to compete 
no matter how much pain you're in, you know when you're severely hurt. You know when you can't do it anymore. But the pain, when it's time to go in the game, seems to always vanish for when I was on the mound. Never felt anything until the one time I was in Long Island where I just couldn't even bend, straighten out my arm. I just knew that that was it. I couldn't pitch. But besides that, it didn't matter if I threw 130 pitches on Friday night and I was sold on Saturday, I know if I win that game, I would be the exact same guy I was the night before and not feel a thing. Strange. Really weird part. Your body and your mind can do a lot of things if you use it and, and it don't think so much about how your body feels because when it's time to go, your body does remarkable things where it knows it's time to keep going and it just kicks in and it will take over for you. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that sentiment because, you know, I think like strain conditioning and, and all this stuff can sometimes be a crutch. And I think for me, it was a crutch until that year of 2014 when I had to make a comeback from my, my second elbow surgery. Because the circumstance was that my business partner and I, we had to move locations, and it was really sudden. So we, we, uh, our gym, Warbird Academy, was in it was in a shared space with this other baseball facility that went out of business, and we were in talks to you know they're gonna we were gonna like buy them out, and it just ended up not working. So we had to kind of like flee and find a new place really fast. And this ended up being we got the keys to our new place like three weeks before I had to leave to go back out to Camden. Um, well, actually to Somerset and, uh, they ended up cutting me, but, um, and so since every, like every minute of the day was devoted to converting this old crappy warehouse into our new facility and getting it done before I left, because otherwise it'd be all my business partner. Um, I just like didn't have time to throw. So I was like, on this two-year track, I'm back from Tommy John, like building up to making my big comeback, like this big moment. And then at the very, very end, like the last three weeks before the tryouts, like the very moment that I was getting ready for, I like threw off the mound like twice. And it was on a, a mound in a concrete warehouse. Um, I played catch like four, four or five times maybe. And I was just like the least prepared I'd ever been. And I was like, you know what? I didn't forget how to pitch. I'm still in pretty good shape. This three weeks is not going to define me. And it didn't. And I just showed up and like everything was still there. It was like I didn't miss a beat. And that was a big moment because at that point I was like, you know what? I can be unprepared and still and still do well and still be me. And I think that was a big lesson for me where I stopped, you know, because when you when you're always preparing and you're always so on routine, when you get off routine, sometimes you panic. And I was a little panicked, but at the end of the day, I was like, right. I'm going to tryouts, and I'm going to go to tryouts unprepared, but there's nothing else I can do about it, so screw it. Like, I'm going to give it what I got. And then when it worked out, it was a it was a big thing for me because it allowed me to be, I think, a better reliever than I otherwise would have been. Because like you said, sometimes you just get the call, and you don't feel well, and you're in the game in four minutes. And if you, like, worry about how your body feels or that you didn't go through your routine, then you handicap yourself, and then you don't pitch well. Yeah, I mean, look, when we played together in Canada, I was probably one of the older guys on the team. And, you know, I would always say, oh, I'm sore, ah, whatever, you know. But when I woke up in the morning, I couldn't stay around the house, okay? This is something I just don't understand with, with guys in baseball. If you're 
if you're there, be there. Want to be there. And I, I never understood people when they, uh, I don't think I can do it today. I, you know, I, I think I might have thrown a little bit too much. That always just upset me because there's people that want to do this and there's people that are just doing it. I don't know if they're scared to go into their life because there's a point where you know if you're going to get to that next step. You know, it's really weird in independent ball because you either have guys that are really young and are out of college and then there's the next step where guys are young and maybe they just got released after their first couple of years of pro ball. And then there are guys that have been in pro ball for a long time and are trying to get back into pro ball. And it's weird to see guys stick around somewhere that aren't dedicated to a craft that it demands a lot of effort mentally, physically, and basically you could, you're telling yourself that this is what you want to do with your life and to come and like be late for something. I never understood one time how anybody would, I think I was late one time my entire career and I think it was in Camden and it was because we had like really bad rain the night before and, and it was flooded and I lived 45 minutes away in Philadelphia and I panicked and I was late by the standards of I missed the EP or something I don't know and um, never in my life have I ever been late and, and I see guys roll in five minutes before it's time for BP or and it's just it always bothered me is like you're preparing for something your whole life to do this why why aren't you taking advantage of it and guys don't seem to do it and they wonder why they're where they're at and it it always bothered me to see that and people complain and and everything else and you're doing something that you're passionate about enjoy it. you're not making any money in independent ball so why are you here? Why are you yeah. taking a spot from someone that wants to be there? So I have a couple questions that I need to answer before we wrap up here. Um, Wait, wrap up? Before we wrap up, up, Murph, we're at an hour. We're killing it. We, we, we haven't even got deep into some good stories. I know, which is what I need. So here's what I need from you. Tell me a couple good Japanese stories because um, I'm looking here on your Wikipedia page which has a hilarious photo of you which I love um, but it says you went undefeated until your first loss against you Darvish in 2009 so clearly you've done some some cool things over there but I want to hear like the little things like the culture shock like the food the way they interact with you like all those little things I mean you told me that it was very similar to the movie with Tom Selleck Mr. Baseball so, like, give us all, like, some of the Japanese baseball experience. Okay. So Japan is awesome, right? Probably one of the best places I've, I mean, I've ever been. I've been to a lot of places. I've played everywhere in the United States, played in Canada, played in the Dominican. I've been everywhere. So, when you do well in Japan, you're a god, okay? It's so cool, Mr. Baseball. Because when you're struggling, you have to do everything they're doing, right? So if you're not pitching well, then they're going to teach you how to pitch. 
right? But if you're pitching well, you you get away with anything. You do whatever you want. So they have floating man rosters. I was never at the games. So when you start, you are deactivated. You are no longer on the roster. So at home, you stay for the first five innings, and then you go home. When and you, you're not allowed in the dugout. You are in the clubhouse. You cannot be in uniform and in the dugout. And then on the road, same thing. You're there for BP, and then I went home. I w- got back on the train a day early and went back to my apartment. So oh, there was a lot of downtime, a lot of eating. <laughs> my favorite, obviously, is sushi, but it gets a little expensive, and it's everything you do there is so if you go eat with people, you're not sitting down like you are in America and eating and they're trying to rush you out, right? Because people based on tips. So in America, you know, they want you in and out of there and get as much money as they can. Well, in Japan, you can go to a restaurant, say a Korean barbecue place, and you can sit there for eight hours and they won't say a word. You're eating and drinking for eight hours and socializing. There's not a problem with it. And that's probably one of the coolest things in Japan is that you go out with your teammates on a day off and you guys, when you sit at a Korean barbecue place for six hours and no one ever bothers you. Hit a little button when you want service and they leave you alone until you hit the button again. That's, that's one of the coolest things. Um, you know, if you, that, that time I, my, my first year I started out in the bullpen and I had a lot of incentive based stuff in my contract. So the first thing was, was hold. So I was in the bullpen and they started me out as kind of like a long guy and I was pitching well. And then I started being the setup guy and I started getting my hold. Well, I reached my incentive in my hold, but they needed a starter on the road trip, on a road trip. And they're like, hey, can you start? I'm like, yeah. But so there's six innings, and then next thing you know, I won, I think, eight in a row, seven or eight in a row, which was tied for the record for a foreign player. And then it went into, we are facing um, the Nippon Fighters. And you Darvish pitching. And everyone's like, Oh my goodness! If you win, oh, you're gonna break the record. Either Darvish, well, you don't have a chance to be a guy that's about to post to go to MLB as any player. So if you notice, look at guys' numbers before they post. They'll have like a one ERA the year they post because the first. I mean, our coaches, players, and everyone is coming up to me and goes, "Oh," and they were apologizing to me before the game because I was facing Darvish. I'm like, "Yeah, what?" What is going on? I go, it's another game, guys. We're in the first place. We're facing Darvish. He's in our division. Let's beat him, right? And they're, like, apologizing. Oh, I'm so sorry. And our hitting coach came in and said, I'm sorry, but today's Darvish. Oh, it's going to be it's tough. I'm sorry. And I'm just like, these guys are already quitting. First inning, we had bases loaded, nobody out, 3-2 count. And Darvish throws a pitch that's up and away, clear ball, and the umpire just rings him up. See ya. Next two guys swing, <clears throat> swinging at balls in the dirt all over the place, punches out the side. And I went out there, I'm like, up. Oh, now I get it. <laughs> no chance. 
and that's the way they operate. I mean, their guys are very good. Hugh Darvish is very good. But to have a 1-5 ERA against professional hitters, pretty tough to do throughout an entire year. But that's just the way it is there, and it's, it's kind of frustrating, but I still end up doing well. You know, you get on a train after a win with the team, and everyone on the train knows you. Because you, you, you had a bicycle or you rode the train. And everyone, I mean, me and my wife would be sworn by people after the game and just have to sign autographs for an hour and a half after every game. In the train station, same thing. With, was, your, with your bike helmet crazy. on? No, no helmet. You kidding me? When I was going down, <laughs> I just down, pictured you I'd signing street. <laughs> with your like red no hair helmet. sticking no through helmet. your bike helmet. It'd be awesome. No, come on, dude. No, I remember uh, one time I had my beard. I have a big red beard, and my second year in spring training, I shaved it, and all the news reporters came to me and they were frustrated that I shaved it, and like, oh no, no, Murphy sign. You need the beard. I'm like, what? What? No, you need the beard. That's how people know Murphy son. It's good luck. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess I have to grow my beard back. So were you on any, like, crazy billboards? And first, have you seen the movie Lost in Translation? Yeah, boring, man. Did not like that movie. It was pretty dull. A big movie guy. That just, it's not necessarily like that. I mean, there's a ton of activities if you want to get involved in Japan that you can do. And it's a lot of fun. I mean, you can you can disappear on an off day, go to Tokyo, and the trains turn back on like at 6 in the morning, so you can just be out all night, get lost in Tokyo, and make sure you're on the train at 6 in the morning getting back to your place. So did you guys fly anywhere, or is it all, all trains? The only time we flew is when uh, we would go play the fighters, because they're up north in Nokaido, which is in uh, northern Japan. And that's the only time we fly. And really tough to fly, because the seats are a lot smaller. So mm-hmm. their upgrade version, we would only have to pay $25 a day the spot to fly first class, which was business class which is just a little bit bigger of a seat. So I made sure that I uh, paid that extra $25 in But besides that, we went first class on the bullet train, which was amazing. So 220 miles an hour zipping through town. Pretty amazing thing. Well, I heard, did you hear that story recently that there was a, a, a Japanese train that left 40 seconds early and they issued a for, the company issued, issued a formal apology? Like, I just love their attention to detail and just how, I mean, I, I think there's just a lot to be said for that, that even people who are maybe doing jobs that others might not want, they still take such pride in doing it well. You know, like 40 seconds early, like that would be a, a miracle if a train was within 40 seconds on time in America. Yeah, they don't, they, everything is right on time when it comes to transportation because, you know, even... Even that, the trains are only like eight minutes apart, you know. But that eight minutes could have cost somebody eight minutes at their job. So they do not like being late. I mean, it's it's really weird how 
organized, unorganized it all is. Because you, if you're in there in rush hour, I mean, there's just people sleeping on you standing up. I remember there was an incident. We were It was an off day, and me and my wife were going to go down to Yokohama. And we had to get off the train because, you know, I'm obviously kind of above everyone. And we were smashed in, and she was, wasn't used to it. She started having a panic attack. We had to just get out of the train and sit down because if if capacity is 50 people, there's 380 people in there. <laughs> so it, it gets a little hectic in the train system there. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I have to also ask um, about the smoke break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so at home, it's on every team, but at our place, fifth inning's over with. And the first time I was there, they gave me these 3D glasses. And I'm like, what is this, right? They're like, no, no, take them, take them. I'm like, why? And so I'm talking to my interpreters, like, oh, it's for the fireworks. I go, well, I'm not going to stick around for the fireworks after the game. I want to get out of here. He's like, oh, no, 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 it's in the fifth inning. I go, what? He goes, yeah, we have a fireworks in the fifth inning. I'm like, why? He goes, oh, it's smoke break time. The players say it's smoke break, right? But in reality, they're like cleaning up the turf, repainting the the lines or whatever in the dirt. But everyone runs in to go have a smoke break, and there's a 3D fireworks show going on in the fifth inning. So it's like a 10 to 15-minute break. After the same inning, while well, everyone uh, either changes clothes, because you know in Japan, you know there's you, it's hot and humid, so every and we have like ten different uniforms, so everyone's changing their uniforms constantly. So the fifth inning is like their inter- intermission to either have a cigarette or you know go sit down to have a minute to just take a break, and uh, that's what they do in the fifth inning on every stadium, man. 15-minute break, and it's just sometimes as a pitcher, I was just like, you get in that, that, that groove, and you don't even want your team to hit. You just want to keep pitching, but every fifth inning, boy, you have to sit down for 15 minutes, and it, it would get on you, but you, get, you kind of get used to it, and that's why you'll see in Japan, the pitchers, like with two outs, they all jump out in front of the dugout, and they're playing catch. In the huh. middle of the game, in front of the dugout, Every pitcher plays catch in front of that out in the middle of the game. It's, it's kind of funny to watch. And then, you know, you don't think as a foreigner you're going to do it, and the next thing you know you're out there doing it because they're, everybody's looking at you like, why isn't he playing catch? So tell me about the fan experience. So I hear there's obviously what well, I've seen firsthand. Well, not firsthand, but I've seen it on the television. There's the seats with all the netting, keep their fans safe. There's like the helmet seats. Um, what's the atmosphere like in a, a Japanese ballpark? It's amazing. Okay, there could literally be okay. Every Monday is a day off. Okay, so say you play on Tuesday, which is typically no matter where you play, is going to be. Um, and a slow day fan right? No matter where we went, both sides, there's a group of people that travel in the outfield. So whatever side of the dugout your team is on, from center field, say on the first base um, side, from center field 
all the way down the right field line is all your fans. And there's a band and everything. And every player has a theme song that they play before you hit, before you pitch. And while you're hitting, everyone's very respectful. So your band is playing your fight songs. And then when it's the other side's time, your, your side no longer cheers. So it's just constantly cheering back and forth. Um, every fan very, very respectful. They're never, they're there to watch their team and not, you know, criticize or get on the other opposing team. That's not what they're about. Um, with the netting, I, you, you know, you, they get used to it. I mean, they don't even know it's there. And I think it's beneficial. I mean, I think in the United States, they should, or MLB or just anywhere, any ball field. The netting is not that bad. You don't even notice it when you're in the stands. Um, but like, this is how their fans are. They they bring their own trash bags to the stadium. So when they're done, they clean up their own trash and then take it with them and throw it in the trash can. So everything there is just really neat and clean, very respectful. I mean, and if they like you, man, it's just it's just amazing. I remember every restaurant I went to for an entire week during my birthday, every single restaurant had a birthday cake for me. <laughs> it's just it's a real neat experience just to have. I mean, I just to go and experience Japan would be neat for a lot of people, you know? Yeah. Well, Murph, well, you keep going. Well, maybe we'll have to have you back on here another time. But this is an awesome talk. I appreciate you coming on the show. Because I knew you had tons of stuff about about your you know your japan days and your minor league days that you know we just didn't quite get out in the bullpen conversation so so i want to have you on here oh that's next time we have to go and get on here let's just tell stories i can tell you a lot of a lot of interesting stories about where i've been and some people i've met and some mistakes i've made can I tell one real quick? Absolutely. All right, so I'm in Toronto, okay? And when I get called up, it's like the first week in Toronto. And I'm staying in the hotel that's attached to the stadium, okay? My room literally overlooked the baseball field. So I wake up, and I go to the window, and I just look down having a cup of coffee. And... Everyone is in uniform in BP, and I'm panic mode. Grab my stuff, take the service elevator, sprint to the clubhouse, open the clubhouse door, and everything's key card. So every time I hear a key card, I'm panicking, like, oh, my God, I'm, tr- I'm going to get sent down. Da, 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 da. Get in there, start throwing on my uniform, and I see the clubhouse manager's filling in laundry, and he looks at me. And I throw on my uniform, grab my glove, and I start sprinting. He goes, Murph, what are you doing? I go, dude, I am so late. He goes, what do you mean you're late? I go, everyone's taking BP. He goes, no, dude, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. Game's at 7. I go, well, what's going on out there? He goes, it's just people pay to play on the field and they get a uniform. I said, are you kidding me? He goes, no, I'm dead serious. And, dude, I've never been so – I'm like, dude, you can't tell anyone about this. 
He goes, dude, I have to tell someone. But dude, you can't. And it's like 1130. Um, God rest his soul. Uh, Holiday walked in. And he was, he was literally my locker mate. And he looked at me like I was the first player ever to beat him to the field. And he didn't like it, dude. He did not like it. From then on out, dude, like, I, I, I couldn't beat him to the field. He was there like at 11 in the morning for 7 o'clock games getting after it. And it was just, I, I couldn't even tell him what happened. I just had to ignore him and just, just go <laughs> sit on the couch. Because I was just so embarrassed, dude. It was unbelievable. So you're responsible for Roy's legendary work ethic. That's what, that's what I'm hearing. Well, no. No one is responsible for that but him, dude. That guy was an absolute beast and a, an animal. I mean, most guys are waking up in spring training at 6 o'clock to get there early like the young guys. And I would, I lived a mile away from Dunning Stadium. And he was already out riding his bike, warming up before anybody thought about getting in the field, man. That guy was just an animal. Preparation, everything. I mean, our our scouting reports were dedicated to him. Hour and a half of just, you know, if you miss here by an inch, it's going to get crushed. And I'm like, who, who has that kind of control? Well, he did. So then I learned that it was pretty much scattering clothes for him because he his work ethic, like when he practiced, he practiced to never miss anything. Dude. So he was just, just an incredible athlete and student and everything, man. He's just an incredible, incredible person. Yeah, I've heard nothing but good stories from him. There was just like nothing but a, a outpouring of praise for him with his accent this past year, with aside from that one, you know, idiot talk show host. But yeah, they're just one of the, the good guys in the game. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there's always that thing where, you know, people always tell you, hey, you need to watch somebody and the way they work because it's not always about what they say, about what they do. And the hard part about learning from him, the only thing you're going to learn from him is to watch him pitch because how are you going to watch a guy that works out when he's working out two hours before anybody even gets to the ballpark? You know, he's already done drinking his protein shake. You know, you had to watch how he worked in between the lines, which, you know, it's not a very easy thing to do. I mean, he's definitely a one percenter of his ability that he worked really hard to be able to have the ability to put the ball where he wanted with four-plus pitches, you know? Yeah. So it, it was just an incredible human being. All right. Well, in the spring, we're going to have you back on. We'll talk about Halliday and all of your deeper cuts. Oh, we'll get we'll get really deep. <laughs> all right, Murph. Well, hey, take care, um, and I'll uh, keep you in my thoughts. Hopefully the uh, forest fire, you know, dies down quick. Yeah, I appreciate it that man and thanks for having me on and hopefully you end back on again all right sounds good see ya all right Dan, take care all right well that's it here for episode 31 of dear baseball gods and just as a reminder jump on to danblue.com i had a bunch of articles uh go live this past week uh one about how to throw a sinker another about how to throw a curveball some really advanced stuff in there good tips for high level pitchers and young pitchers alike uh, also, a couple uh, a couple pieces on 
bunting, you know, is it the, a good strategy? And a more in-depth one about uh, the hit and run. Is that a good play? Uh, what do the numbers say? And, you know, does it make sense for uh, both a player and a coaching staff? So check those out, and we'll see you here next week on Dear Baseball Gods.